Hi, you are now listening to a sermon from Harvest Community Church in Hoffman Estates, Illinois. Today you will hear a sermon from Pastor Dave Lee, so without further ado, here he is. Good morning. If you're uh, fairly new, my name is Dave, I'm one of the pastors here, and I'm going to be giving the message, and we're working our way through a series on the parables of Jesus, and the parables were a series of stories Jesus told throughout the ministry. He used the device of stories to get past our initial defenses and to teach without realizing that teaching is what he's doing. He's trying to bring reality into focus by telling us a story. And everybody will follow a good story. But at the end of it, you kind of pause and realize you see something more clearly than you did before because of that story. Today's story is the parable of the Good Samaritan. And it's probably, it's arguably the most famous of Jesus' stories. Um, everybody has heard probably the, the parable of the prodigal son and the Good Samaritan. I, I think, though, that because it is so familiar, something of the great shock value of this story to the original audience has been lost. And I think we want to reclaim some of that this morning. So here's the text. It comes out of Luke chapter 10, Verse 25 to 37. Before we get into it, why don't we just pause for one more second of prayer? Okay? And here's what, here's what we're going to pray. Look at, look at me first before we pray. I've prayed a lot this week for the giving of this word. We're going to pray now for the receiving of it on your end, that God would be as powerfully working in you as he may be in me as I give it and you're receiving it. God is working in both of us together. So let's pray that right now. God, we pray for our hearts. Our ears are ready to listen. But Lord, this message has to work its way into our hearts so that we become people who really are in your hands, who belong to you, who will change more than our minds. We will change the way that we walk and live and think. We pray that you will do this by your power this morning. If we're tired, wake us up. If we're distracted or heavy laden in our hearts, we pray, God, that you would put our minds on you and on what you're doing here right now. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Here's what the text says. And behold, a lawyer stood up to put him to the test, saying, Teacher, What shall I do to inherit eternal life? He said to him, what is written in the law? How do you read it? And he answered, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength and with all your mind and your neighbor as yourself. And he said to him, you have answered correctly. Do this and you will live. But he, desiring to justify himself, said to Jesus, and who is my neighbor? Jesus replied, A man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho, and he fell among robbers who stripped him and beat him and departed, leaving him half dead. Now by chance a priest was going down that road, and when he saw him, he passed by on the other side. So likewise a Levite, when he came to the place and saw him, passed by on the other side. But a Samaritan, as he journeyed, came to where he was, And when he saw him, he had compassion. 
He went to him and bound up his wounds, pouring on oil and wine. Then he set him on his own animal and brought him to an inn and took care of him. And the next day he took out two denarii and gave them to the innkeeper, saying, Take care of him, and whatever more you spend, I will repay you when I come back. Which of these three do you think proved to be a neighbor to the man who fell among the robbers? He said, The one who showed him mercy. And Jesus said to him, You go and do likewise. Now, the setting for the telling of the story, as was already established here, is that a lawyer stood up and put him to the test. Now, don't think lawyer in the traditional sense of the lawyers of today. This was a man who was an expert in the religious law of Israel. He thought about the law, he dwelt on it, he debated about it, he posed different questions. In other words, this was his arena in which he tried very hard to establish just how clever he was, how well-educated he was. And he, he hears this very radical, revolutionary teacher making the circuit and, and giving these very, very radical sermons that were shaking the religious establishment. And he decided, let me see what this guy's really made of. And so he asked him a question that was the kind of question that, you know, would divide. It's sort of like this. Um, are you a Democrat or Republican? Or are you pro-choice or pro-life? Or are, are you for gay marriage or against? It's these, these sort of litmus test questions that instantly divide the room, and you know now who you're dealing with. What kind of person do we have here? And so this guy was trying to figure out from Jesus, what exactly is your view on how everything works, how a person becomes saved? What happens in the afterlife? How does someone attain to eternal life? And this is the kind of question that the religious experts of the day debated incessantly. And so he puts the question to him, not as a genuine question, but as a test to try to trap him. And Jesus, in typical rabbi fashion, says, well, you know, what do you think it is? He turned the question right back on him, which is actually a very good teaching technique we ought to do that with our children more. If you have children, learn to ask a good question in response to a question. Don't just keep lecturing your kid. Just go, what do you think it is? I, I think that's how psychiatrists make a gazillion dollars is they just sit there and go, well, I don't know. What do you think it is? And, and you heal yourself in a way. I, if you're a psychiatrist, please don't take that as an insult. I'm saying it's clever, okay? And so this guy, Jesus turns it back on and he answered you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul, and with all your strength and with all your mind and your neighbor as yourself. Now, up to that last part, your neighbor as yourself, that's a pretty standard answer. But the way this guy put it together, it was actually a very brilliant response to this question. It's not the usual response people gave in that day. In fact, this is exactly the same response Jesus would give later to his critics in Matthew 22, what came to be known to us as the greatest commandments. When someone tested him saying, what is the greatest commandment? He answered exactly in this way. That at the heart of this entire Christian enterprise are these two simple things. Love God with everything you have and without skipping a beat, love your fellow man the same way that you love yourself. And Jesus hearing this says, you know what? That is as good an answer as I could give. You have answered correctly. Now just do that and you'll have what you're after. You will have eternal life. Now, 
when Jesus affirms the guy's answer, I think it throws him for a loop. He was expecting a good fight. Instead, Jesus goes, high five. That was an awesome answer. You go do exactly what you said. But you see, he's like a lot of people in the church today. He had the right answer, but he had completely missed the right understanding. I think we can string together lots of correct words and get an A-plus and a gold sticker in Sunday school. But the truth is, a lot of the right answers we speak, we have failed to fully understand what those right answers mean to us. Answers are one thing, but sometimes answers carry a tremendous weight that we're not prepared to really grasp. And that's exactly what happened to this guy. Now, I think when he heard Jesus affirm that answer, he was troubled because if this really is at the heart of the kingdom of God, if this is the key to eternal life, is to love God with everything you have and to love your neighbor, well, especially that last part is a little troubling, isn't it? Because it's so open-ended. If he said, okay, here's what it is. If you want eternal life, say the sinner's prayer after me. Just repeat these words and then cry a little if you can and give some money to something good. And then you could, I mean, if you could check off three things, did that, did that, did that, I have eternal life. The problem with Jesus' answer, and I think the problem with Christianity, is it's so mind-bogglingly open-ended. There is no completion point. There is no place at which I go, all right, I did it. I am now officially a Christian. It's this open-ended, ongoing call to be relationally connected to God and other people in a way that honors God and honors other people. In fact, God will not reduce his kingdom to a set of rules or to a religious system. It is always brought right back to a relationship with him and with our fellow man. And I think... The reason he was so troubled, the reason he asked that follow-up question, who is my neighbor, is because he's trying very hard to manage, to wrap his mind around this thing. If the call of God and the key to eternal life is to love other people as I love myself, I need to figure out exactly what that means because the implications are staggering. And who is my neighbor? That's a universal question. You know what it's asking is, what are the limits to this? What exactly is expected of me in this regard? Another way of saying it is, let's be reasonable. How far does God expect me to take this loving my neighbor business and loving him business? And so he tells this story, and the the question that triggers the parable is this question. Oh, so who exactly is my neighbor? He wants to sword fight a little because he can't accept the fact that what if everyone that I come across who has a need is my neighbor? What if every Joe along the way of my life who is in need is my neighbor and God calls me to love them to the same extent that the characters in the story? What if that's the case? What if I can't walk away from it as easily as I really want to walk away from it? And the whole time we're putting up boundaries trying to figure out how can I manage the obligations of this kingdom. And Jesus tells a story in response to that question and that heart's attitude. He's breaking down boundaries with this story. And I think the first boundary he's attacking are religious boundaries. And that's where these two characters enter, the priest and the Levite. So here's a story 
A man's walking down the road, and the road between Jerusalem and Jericho is not fictional. He's using a familiar road to everybody in his audience. It's about a 17-mile stretch from Jerusalem to Jericho. You drop down about 3,500 feet in elevation, and it's a very, very treacherous road. This is a shot of that road today. There's actually a modern paved highway running kind of next to it, but this is the kind of road you're talking about. There's steep ravines on either side, lots of winding blind turns, and it came to be known as the Way of Blood. That's the name of the road in those, in, among the people of his day, uh, in part because Herod had laid off like 40,000 construction workers, and there was a lot of unemployment, and a lot of these guys had turned to highway robbery. Now, highway robbery in those days wasn't stick them up, and you get your money, and you walk... It was such a brutal kind of crime because after they had gotten your money, they would take your dignity and your health. They would strip you naked, beat you, and that's unnecessary. It's overkill. You already have my money. Why do you have to strip me and beat me silly? It was something about the desperation, the wickedness in people's hearts. And this road was littered with highway robbers, bandits who would brutalize you this way. And so this is a very common story. It's not something strange to Jesus' hearers. And so here you have an imaginary man traveling from Jerusalem to Jericho down this horrible road, and predictably, he gets savaged, mugged, beaten, stripped, robbed. He has lost everything, and he's laying there on the road, and it happens that a priest and then a Levite, and we don't need to distinguish. Some people have tried to fine-tune what exactly is the difference There's no difference, really. You can lump them in the same category as guys who worked in the temple in Jerusalem. Now, they had so many priests and so many Levites in those days that every Levite or priest would basically serve a one-week term during the year. They would commute into the temple, into Jerusalem, serve their one-week term, and then go back to their homes and their normal day jobs. And it's likely that this guy was either on his way to or on his way from his one-week service for the year. And it happened that these guys walked past this man and they saw him. Now, the closest parallel parallel maybe is if we see somebody in bad shape on the street begging for money or if we see somebody broken down on the side of a remote road and we're like driving past and we know that a lot of other motorists won't come by, by this way and you see that person and something in the back of your mind nags at you. Someone should help that person. And that's the last thought you have as you look at him in the rearview mirror. Somebody should help that person. And these guys came across this man, and they said, well, we'd like to help. The problem is that when a Jew gets too close to a dead body, in fact, the law said, if you get even within four feet of a dead body, you become ceremonially unclean for like a week. And it really messes up all your lifestyle, everything else. And if they were on the way to serve at the temple... That would disqualify them for the one week a year when they could serve in the temple. And so these guys face the dilemma. They see this guy bleeding and bruised on the road, but they say, if we go and approach him, it's going to mess up our thing. And so what they decide to do is not get involved at all. And they literally cross. They did physically what we often do in our hearts. I'm not getting, I'm sorry. Good luck. Blessings on you. You know, blessings on you is the English version of I can't get involved. Blessings on you as someone else. Because I, I can't. I want to. I'm a better person than is in my heart. But I can't get involved with this. It's too much. They had stuck to the letter of the law. 
but they had missed its spirit completely. They were worried about ceremonial uncleanliness. They had forgotten about moral cleanliness. They were ceremonially or religiously clean and pure, but inside of God, morally, humanly, they were fallen and corrupt. I think sometimes our clinging to certain religious convictions keeps us from treating other people with dignity and care. I'm going to throw at you a very, very um, provocative example of this. This is a woman named Dana Morales. She is a server at a restaurant in New Jersey, and she's an openly lesbian person. And over the course of serving a meal to this woman and her two children, it came out that she's gay. And after running up about a $100 bill, the woman stiffed her on her tip. Now, it's one thing if a person forgets to tip, but this person didn't forget to tip. If you see that little uh, picture of the receipt, she scrawled a note on this receipt that said, I'm sorry, but I cannot tip because I do not agree with your lifestyle or the way that you live your life. That's messed up. That really disappoints me. It, It is not the kind of thing that should happen in the name of Jesus. Now, I'm not saying anything about the morality of homosexuality. I probably will fall very close to where that that customer fell in terms of believing whether homosexuality is wrong or right in the sight of God. But just because someone lies outside of the boundary markers of conduct and morality as I see it does not excuse me from treating that person with human dignity and kindness and grace. That's exactly what happened with these guys. They were so stuck on maintaining religious purity, they didn't want to get associated with anything unclean. Despite the fact that this victimized man might have been still alive, to get close enough to check on him would mean risking ceremonial uncleanness. I don't want to be seen around this. I can't be associated with this. And for that reason, we draw the boundary markers in a certain place and say, anybody outside of that, I am now free to disregard them to disrespect them, to dishonor them, because they, by their own conduct, have put themselves outside the camp. Do you understand, and be clear on this, I'm not making a statement about the morality of homosexuality, but I'm making a statement about when we have such a sharp line drawn between us and other people whose morality and conduct is different from ours, that we somehow excuse ourselves from ministering to or interacting with those people. I'm not the first one to have this idea. There are a lot of people that the religious leaders of Jesus' day wouldn't touch with a 10-foot pole, and Jesus kept eating at their houses, and this was very troubling to them. What kind of self-respecting Christian leader eats with whores and tax collectors? Who does that? How would you feel if you found out that your pastor was constantly having lunch with prostitutes and strippers? I mean, you'd laugh, but people would start going, well... We get what you're doing, the whole Jesus thing, but really, Pastor Dave, maybe not the best idea. There is something bothersome in our hearts about when we cross religious lines. And so in the name of religious purity, we draw these boundaries. And what are we doing when we do that? We're putting a buffer between us and certain people so that conveniently we can say, well, good, there's a whole group of people I don't ever have to deal with. Makes my life a little easier. If the key to eternal life and the kingdom of God is to love my neighbor as myself, I've just de-neighbored a bunch of people. Oh, good. Well, because that's a little overwhelming. So the homosexuals, 
the prostitutes, the drug addicts, the gangbangers, I can de-neighbor them so that I can focus on other people who are legitimately my neighbor. That makes it a little more manageable. Jesus, I can actually do this now. I've got clear boundaries drawn as to who's inside the boundary and who's outside the boundary. Now, the thing is, Jesus is using a very common teaching device of the day. A moral story in which there would be two characters you would expect to know better, but they would show their hypocrisy, blow it completely, and then the third character would be the hero of the story. The punchline would say, well, here comes the guy you'd least expect, and guess what? He's the hero of the story. So the Jewish audience listening to Jesus' parable are already tracking with him all we know. They actually didn't have a very high view of priests and Levites. They respected Pharisees a little more, but they had a pretty low view of priests and Levites. And so when Jesus is like, yeah, there's the priest, there's the Levite, they're all going, that's weak sauce, man. These guys should have known better. Priests and Levites especially should have not worried about ceremonial uncleanliness. They should have gone and taken care of this guy. And so they're all just like us, just nodding, shaking their heads in judgment. What a bunch of losers. And now here's what the audience is expecting. The third traveler to come along is going to be an average Joe Jewish guy, and he's going to do what the priests and Levites should have done but didn't. And that's exactly what the audience is expecting. Come on, Jesus, tell it. It's one of us, right? Not these stupid Levites and priests. It's one of us, regular Joes, who's going to come in and finally act like a real good guy. So you can imagine then that everybody threw up their lunch when the third traveler comes along and Jesus goes, oh, yeah. And so the third guy comes along, guess what? And he's a Samaritan. I, I don't know if you, realize, you, if you were in Jesus' original audience, you, you would have choked on your lunch right then. That's messed up. How can I put it? It's like the mayor of New York post 9-11 saying, there were a lot of heroic people, but the most heroic person in New York City post 9-11 was this man, this Middle Eastern man, whose uncle is in Al-Qaeda, but he loves America. Now, maybe it's factually true, but people were not ready to accept that. They weren't ready to hear that the hero of the story is somebody for whom they held the deepest kind of prejudice and disdain. Uh, you know, racism is still alive and well in America, but maybe it's not alive and well in your own circles of influence. I don't know. Maybe you felt it. Maybe you've practiced it. But this, this enmity, this hatred between the Jews and the Samaritans was legendary. Let me give you an idea of how deep this ran. There were faithful Jews who prayed diligently every single day. Is there anything you pray about every day? These guys prayed every day begging God, please don't let any Samaritans make it into the kingdom of heaven. I mean, think about it. Every day praying that a whole group of people will never receive the mercy of God. Here's another example of how deep it ran. In the law books were stiff penalties for murder. If a Samaritan killed another Samaritan, off of his head. If a Jew, if a Samaritan killed a Jew, off with his head. But if a Jew killed a Samaritan, eh, it's one less Samaritan. No penalty in the law. Nothing that said, well, the Jew's in big trouble, because after all, what did he do? He got rid of one more Samaritan for us. Give the guy a medal. I know that sounds shocking to you, but it wasn't so long ago that there were things like that happening in this country and all over the world still today, this kind of mind-boggling injustice and, and prejudice still exists. So when the hero of the story is not one of them, but one of the most hated people, 
It shatters everybody's expectation. And what's Jesus doing there with that shock value? He's not just a shock jock trying to stir you up. He's saying, do you see what's going on here? That maybe the priest and the Levite had these boundaries drawn way out because of their religious boundaries. But we also have all kinds of relational boundaries, don't we? And it's part of the same human desire to section off large groups or or sections of humanity that I don't ever have to worry about. If you're outside of the, the moral and religious boundaries I live in, I don't have to deal with you. I don't have to worry about you. But we also have these relational boundaries that say, if you're outside of my circle, you're somebody else's problem. I don't ever have to deal with people like you because I've already decided you are in an area, a category in my life that I can immediately, with no criticism, disregard and dishonor. I think that's ultimately what racism is. It's a way of saying, I treat my fellow human being with dignity. You're just not my fellow human being. It lets me off the hook. I can treat you however I want because you're no longer a person. I've objectified you. I've objectified you. I mean, mean, that's why when I was growing up, people called me chink. I'm like, chink is, what is that? That's like a noun. It's not even a, it's not even a human trait. It's just the shape of, it's a slit. It's the shape of my eye. When you call me that, when you just refer to me simply by the shape of my eye opening, you're basically dehumanizing me and reducing me to a thing. Every racial word, every slur is like that. When the people, the Hutus and the Tutsis, were just destroying each other in civil war and genocide in Rwanda, the ones on top always called the other cockroaches. As they were hacking the arm off of their next-door neighbor with the machete, they would say, you are not a person, you are no longer my neighbor, you are a cockroach. And they would chop their arm off, because if you dehumanize a person that way, you're free to treat them as something other than your fellow human being. What I do to you is not something I would do to another person. Thank God you're not another person. You're just this thing. I think that's at the heart of what we're trying all the time to do, whether in such pronounced ways or not, is how do I get it so that I can manage this obligation to love my fellow man? Because there's just too many of them. Surely there must be a group I can safely disregard. How about that young man panhandling on the side of the street? You go, well, you look healthy enough to get a job. Get a job. And because I've said that and done the calculus in my mind, I can safely walk past all young men begging on the street because they're all a bunch of bums who could get a job, and they're not. And right away, I've reduced a man to just a bad decision, a category, and it allows me not even to think, what if he has a different story? What if there's something about him where he needs help to get unstuck? That's like me just telling somebody in, my, in our church, Pastor Dave, I'm hopelessly addicted to internet porn. Just stop being addicted. <laughs> Whatever. Oh, thanks. If you just said that earlier, I would... Come on. Is it that simple as you just say, hey, stop doing that bad thing you're doing? And if you don't, I can safely disregard you because you're an idiot. But do you see what we're doing? Is we're looking for ways to reduce humanity to a reasonable burden that I can carry. And one of the easiest ways to do that is to write off entire sections of humanity as people I don't ever have to deal with. I think one of the things we have to remember in this story 
is that maybe the Jews hated the Samaritans, but the Samaritans weren't exactly the Jews' biggest fans either. They had borne a lot of abuse at the hands of the Jews, and so for the Samaritan to love another Jew was a pretty major step. By making the Samaritan the hero of the story, he is heaping hot coals of conviction on the heads of his hearers. Saying, here's this person you have disdained and thought nothing of, and he is helping your countrymen in a way that your own countrymen would not. And earlier, Jesus says, haven't you heard that it was said, love your neighbor and hate your enemies, but I tell you, and this is subversive, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you, that you may be children of your Father in heaven. If you love those who love you, what reward will you get? Are not even the tax collectors doing that? And if you greet only your own people, what are you doing more than others? Do not even pagans do that. What Jesus is saying is that one of the greatest evidences that the love of God is in you is seen in how you treat your enemies. Those people who formerly were in that category of people you could safely disregard and dehumanize, suddenly you see the love of God rising in you in the way that you treat those people who are your enemies. In my own lifetime... I brought some challenge and healing to my own grandparents by buying a Toyota. The Japanese were just horrific to the Korean people in the 40s when they occupied our country. And my, parents, my grandparents were part of a generation that remembered those injustices and those abuses, and they hated the Japanese people in their hearts. I, and I, I, don't, I don't mean just like they didn't like Japanese. They hated Japanese people. And from a human perspective, for good reason. A great many of them had suffered horribly at the hands of the Japanese oppressors. So they refused, even when the products were better than everything else, they just refused to let the Japanese get a penny of their money. When I bought a Japanese car, basically what they had to confront was, well, I don't, the, the guys who did that to you are long dead. These people haven't done anything to us. They just make good cars. It's time to move on. I didn't want to be frivolous about it. But over the course of time, what I saw in my grandparents is as they came to the Lord, a lot of their old views moved aside. I I wonder who you considered once to be part of that group of people you really didn't have to deal with. You could disregard, dehumanize. Maybe you don't struggle with racial hatred. Maybe that's not the way your relational boundaries are drawn. But maybe our relational boundaries are drawn simply through neglect or selectivity. Let me ask you a question. By the way, this is, I got to just mention these people. Um, Our friends at the Open House Community Group introduced Pastor Jared and and me to this couple, Nabi and Samia Haddad. They are Christians laboring in Lebanon for the Lord. And as this flood of Syrian refugees enters Lebanon, they are ministering to them in incredibly sacrificial ways. But the backstory is that the Syrian people had greatly persecuted this particular Christian community in years past, had destroyed their building, exploded it, in fact. They had suffered greatly at the hands of Syrians, and now that the Syrians were finally on the ground, down and out, finally in a position for them to kick them and say, How's it feel? 
That is not the response that welled up in their hearts. The response that welled up in their hearts was, how can we love these people in a way they never thought to love us when they had the upper hand? When they had power, how does the world use power? The world uses power to exert dominance, but the people of Christ use power to elevate others, to show mercy, to do exactly what those people would never have done for us, to demonstrate that what courses through our veins is wholly, categorically different than what motivates them. If the world doesn't see that, really, what voice can we have in the world? If we're just like them or worse. This couple stands for me as a living example of people who understood what Jesus commanded when he said, love your enemies, and they're doing it. They're out here in the States raising money to minister to people who had persecuted them. And God is moving through that kind of grace. Maybe your relational boundaries are drawn differently. Maybe they're drawn through neglect and selectivity. Let me ask you, how many real relationships do you have with people who are outside of your socioeconomic class? I mean, even in your own ethnic group. How many people do you have friendships with who are in your same ethnicity but of a totally different social class? And I'm not, I'm not talking about I serve food to them at the soup kitchen and say, hey, you know, I'm, I'm like a real friend. Like, you hang together. They come to your house. If they have a home, you go to their house. How many friends do you have that are way outside your own age group or generation. I mean, that's like the Red Sea in our day. Like, what, me, friends with like an old person? Like you, Pastor Dave? Like these 20-somethings treat me like I'm one foot's in the grave. I'm like, yeah, we could actually be friends, you know. There isn't this big fence around your generation. And what about going the other way? How many older people, seasoned people, how many young friends do you have? I mean, not somebody you're trying to show the ropes to, not someone you're caring for, but they're your friend. They trust you. You trust them. They know things about you. You spend time socially together. What about people in a different educational level than you or who have different cultural or style preferences than you? How about people who have a different level of mobility or physical well-being than you? How many real friends do you have that are radically different than what you are like? Because it may be that what keeps people at arm's length in your life is not hatred and bigotry, but simply neglect, saying there are whole classes of people I never really felt motivated to have any relationship with. I don't write you off. I just don't even look at you. You're not visible to me as far as I'm concerned because my dance card is already filled with the people I know. Let me move on before this turns into tomorrow here. So far, we've sat in judgment together with Jesus and the audience over two groups of people, right? First, we've judged the hypocrisy of the Levite and the priest who hid behind their religious purity and forgot that God wants us to treat people with love and dignity and grace. So he tore down religious boundaries. And then we sat in judgment over the prejudiced Jews who couldn't handle the fact that a Samaritan, a hated Samaritan, was the hero of the story. And we're clucking our tongues and shaking heads going, those Jews, you know. They should have been a little more open-minded. So what if it was a Samaritan who saved the day? Is that so bad? Shouldn't we learn from that? But there's a third group that needs to be challenged and measured on God's scales, and that's you and me. 
for lack of a better term, to stay with the R's like a good Baptist, I, I went with resource boundaries. And here's what I mean by that. Let me unpack that a little. One element of the story we cannot just gloss over is the staggering extent to which this Samaritan traveler cared for the brutalized, victimized man. First off, it says that before he rendered any care, he stopped, saw the guy, and what did he do first? He had compassion. That's something nobody else had done. Before we give any care at all physically to a person, the first thing that a hurting person really longs for is to be seen, to actually be visible, and for someone to say, yeah, I know you're in bad shape, but, but the, what they're saying is, no, I know just how bad your shape is, and I'm with you. I would never want to be in your position, and I know it cannot be easy to go through that alone. A pastor friend of mine who lives in the Pacific Northwest was beginning to do some ministry among the homeless, and he said, you know, I can't really identify with these people I'm helping. So he did an experiment, and for about 48 hours, he lived on the streets begging as a homeless person. Now, he said it was pretty cold, pretty uncomfortable, but the hardest part of those two days was how invisible he felt. He said it was like being within arm's length of millions of people, and no one even looked at him. Even the people who gave him money didn't make any eye contact. They would just put money in his hat and then just move on. Like, let me just give some money to this bum thing here. And then they just kept going. And they, they wouldn't, if a gun was put to their heads a block down the street, and they said, was that a male or a female you just gave money to? I don't know, it was just a bum. A bum thing on the road is all it was. He said that was actually the hardest part of the whole experience was that he thought he was one of them. He was another middle-class American, but they looked at him like he was invisible, like he was something not human at all. And I think in the end, that's what people who are alone and suffering are waiting for, is just for somebody to pause and say, I see you. If you've ever been in trouble... You know exactly what I'm talking about. I remember running out of gas and watching hundreds of drivers just pass me while I'm standing by the side of the road. Hood is open, I'm waiting, and just people are driving by. Drive. I think, I just wish one person would stop and say, hey, sucks to be you, man. Just one. But then he didn't just say, hey, bro, tough luck, huh? He did something. He bound up his wounds. He gave first aid right on the spot. He did something right where he found the guy. The immediacy of his need was met. Now, let me just challenge you. I think that's the point at which most of us in American evangelicalism would probably stop. Because that's the point at which we're now free of criticism. Listen, you've done nothing. I did something. I gave the guy something. He was bleeding. I bound up his wounds. I patched him up, and I left him for the next guy. After all, it's a relay race. I did my part. I'm going to move on, hand the baton off. The next traveler will do something for him. And it's hard to find fault with that, because why is this guy suddenly gum stuck on my shoe? Why is this guy suddenly my problem? I was just, you know, wandering down the road, minding my own business. Oh, man. Here's a guy in really bad shape, why is he suddenly my deal? Is that right? Is that reasonable? Is that fair? It's actually not. But there's very little about the kingdom that's right and reasonable and fair by that standard measure. He puts him on his own animal. 
And I want you to think about the risk he was taking. A Samaritan bringing a beaten, beaten and bleeding Jew slung over his donkey into Jericho. Do you realize how risky a thing that was for him to do? They would have lynched him. They're like, what'd you do to that Jewish guy, man? You dirty Samaritan dog. Did you beat him? He'd be like, I'm rescuing the guy. Yeah, whatever. All you Samaritans lie. He was risking personal harm doing what he did. And then he brings the guy to an inn because there was no tertiary care hospital. There's, uh, it was basically just inns where people would care for you, would feed you, would house you, would clean your bandages. So he brings him to an inn and he says, listen, here's a couple bucks. I want you to take care of this guy for at least a couple of days. I have business in Jericho. But before I move on, I'm going to come back. And if there were any additional expenses, I'm going to bankroll his full recovery. And I will follow up personally. I will come back to check on his status. Do you see just how far above and beyond this guy went? Today, the great challenge in American Christianity is do something. And when we're doing nothing, that's actually a pretty major step. But the kingdom's call is not do something, it's do everything. It's not to look at a person in a bad situation and say, let me just do what I can. It is to say, if I were in your shoes, I would not want token gestures. I would want someone to help me get back into it. To actually recover from this, not just to get a band-aid, but to actually get well again. And I don't think I can make it there by myself. Now, is that reasonable? Is what Jesus saying, is, is it that everybody who has a need, we should basically take care of everything for them? You couldn't hold on a full-time job if that were the case. I don't think the issue is to, to exaggerate and, and make Jesus saying what he's not saying. But I do believe this. Over the course of your life as a traveler down life's road, you're going to encounter some people and God's spirit would pull on you in a very particular way and say to you, this is not one of those you get to do something and walk on. This person is for you. And I don't mean to say that in a derogatory, but I, I refer to these people in my own mind as the gum on my shoe. I can't shake them. They're stuck on me because God did that. It's that person that I see just lonely. Nobody's talking to him. And I walk up to him and I say, hey, are you all right? And they're like, oh, friend. And now they want me to be their only friend. They're following me everywhere. And they're calling me at all hours of the night. It's that person who you're like, I should have never said anything. Good Lord. I, I've got to help this person become socially adjusted now. Come on. When did you become my responsibility? You see somebody who's down and out. And rather than giving him food for a meal, you feel burdened. I'm going to help this person get back on their feet. I can't save them all. But there are going to be times when you just know it in your gut that the Spirit of God is saying, I'm going to use you to do more than the average thing for this person. And there needs to be a proper wrestling match in the way that we're trying to constantly draw boundaries. Maybe it's religious. Maybe it's relational. Maybe it's just about, God, God be reasonable. i got to feed my own family. How can I make this person's need my problem? Isn't it too much? Can't I somehow redraw the boundaries so that I can keep moving on with my life? Why do I have to care about this person? Why do I have to see it through to the end? And I think what Jesus would say to us is because that's actually the way my kingdom works. You're not going to find this kind of love in the world, but in my kingdom, you actually will. 
everyone will give you a bone. But God's people are supposed to bring you home. They're supposed to feel what you feel. They're supposed to suffer alongside of you. To to experience loss for your sake so you can gain. Who else but the people redeemed by Jesus would ever do that for another person? Who? Let me just wrap up by saying this. This is a familiar verse to many of us. Jesus said, For I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. We think of the Pharisees as people whose standards were too high. They, did, they expected too much. They go too far. But what Jesus says about the Pharisees is they didn't go far enough. Their righteousness was about all these rules and boundaries. Here's the narrow, the narrow window in which you have to obey God. Anywhere outside of this narrow hedge of protection, you can disregard everybody else. The Pharisees had extremely high standards for an extremely narrow band of human, human life. And what Jesus says of them is these guys were experts at rules and boundaries. But they were amateurs at the kingdom. They could give you all the right answers, but they totally misunderstood how my kingdom works. Now, it's a messy kingdom. It's an unreasonable kingdom where sometimes people you run across will stick to your feet like gum on your shoe and you can't shake them until they're well. It's a kingdom where somebody else you're not related to becomes your burden because they're God's burden. And the calculus doesn't work out. It's not fair, it's not reasonable, it's not easy, but it is the kingdom of God. I think the purpose of the story is to say, where are you drawing boundaries so that this thing called the kingdom of God is manageable to you? Students, what I say to Okay. Flash flood warning. <laughs> Be careful. Let me just end with something. To, we, we never talk to the students. Let me just even talk to you students. If I say to you, there's that lonely kid in school... Nobody likes them. They're weird. Maybe you're that kid. I don't know. So why don't you go and befriend them? Wouldn't your response be, yeah, but why do I have to do it? Nobody wants to do it. I, I'm not going to get involved. In if I do that, no one will think I'm cool anymore. It'll totally taint my reputation. Why does that person's loneliness and awkwardness have to be my responsibility? Because whose responsibility will it be if not for the people who are lost and dead and were found by Jesus' love and rescued? Who else's problem should it be but ours? Who else on earth cares? And someday you may find yourself in that very place of need. And I hope that day it will be a follower of Jesus who will be to you what your heart is longing for. Someone who doesn't draw their boundaries so far out that you're not included in their life. Why don't we go to God in prayer? And after we're done, stick around here for a while. Don't drive in the flood.
Maybe you're not a racist. Maybe you're not a religious bigot. But I think the point of Jesus' whole story is to say, who in your life is safely disregarded? Doesn't matter. Who doesn't count? Who's not visible to you? Why don't we just go to God in prayer? I I think I've said enough. I think there are some things the Holy Spirit may want to say to some of us about the way that we relate to others in this kingdom. So let's let God finish the sermon in a personal way for each of us. Thanks for listening to the sermon from Harvest Community Church. If you would like more information or have any questions or comments, check out our website at harvest-community.org. Thanks for listening.